Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life. Because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. It's true. Author to Authors, brought to you by Author Magazine, premier free writing magazine on the Internet, featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as my video interviews with best-selling authors across the genres. Uh, For the last month, I've had that great conversation I had with Garth Stein and Kevin O'Brien about the founding of the Seattle Seven, a fantastic, iconic uh, writing organization here in the Northwest. Um, Great conversation. Coming up next month, though, oh, I did a bunch of conversations at the Pacific Northwest Writers Conference with authors, including Damon Suede. Oh, the tornado of energy that is Damon Suede, uh, president-elect of Romance Writers of America, very unusual guy, brilliant guy, had a lot of good things to say. That'll be up ah, October 1st. Check it out. We're also funded by the Pacific Northwest Writers Association, supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. And, of course, the people who put up the great Pacific Northwest Writers Conference. We had another huge success this year. Yes, we did. Greg Baer gave a good keynote, the science fiction writer. One of the founders – did I say this last week? I don't care. I'm going to say it again. He's one of the founders of Comic-Con. Imagine that. Yeah, he was one of the people who first put that on. Well, anyway, he was there. Uh, a lot of people were there. I was there. Great conference. Highly recommend being a part of the PNWA, no matter where you live. That's right. Even if you live far afield, uh, you can join the PNWA in our monthly meetings that happen here in Seattle, the Seattle area. Uh, you can listen in on the Internet. Yes, you can. So you see, it doesn't matter. You have no excuse. You need to join it, the PNWA. And today we're also uh, – today's show is also brought to you by uh, – oh, no, where did he go? Somebody who uh, was brought to you by Jason Bricks. Write like hell. If I can just get the file to open. There it is. Yes. Write like hell. It's a 12-month intensive course of goal setting, education, and coaching designed to move your career at warp speed for a year. It consists of four major pillars, aggressive but attainable goals for your writing career, training and education to give you the tools to meet those goals, personal coaching to keep you on track, community of equally devoted writers. It's neither cheap nor easy, but it can be life-changing. If you're interested in this, Email Jason at brick, comma, Jason at gmail.com. That's brick, comma, spelled out, C-O-M-M-A, Jason, brick, comma, Jason at gmail.com. Check it out. Jason's a great guy. Met him. I like him. I recommend it. Okay, quickly, about me. Yes, I will be teaching fearless writing at Write on the Sound. That's October 4th. So that's, oh, just a week away. Yes, it is. And that'll be on Friday. I think there's still room. A bunch of people signed up for it, but it's a three and a half hour intensive fearless writing. It's awesome. I love teaching it. I hope to see you there. And if you can't make it, maybe you're down in the California area. I'm going to be at the Writer's Digest Novel Writing Conference where I will be teaching a couple different things. I know Alice Hoffman's going to be the keynote speaker. Love Alice. Uh, and I'll be there doing it. So check it out. And hey, if you're up in Alaska a year from now, I'm going to be giving the keynote at the uh, Alaska Writers Conference up there in Anchorage. Just found that out today. It's a year away, but mark it on your calendar. Why not? Okay, enough about me. Let's talk about today's guest, Mr. Frank Heller. He has biographical exhibition catalogs of American and European artists, some of which, boys and girls, are housed in the Smithsonian Institute, Institution Libraries 
in Washington, D.C. He was a hospital corpsman in the U.S. Navy during the early years of the Vietnam War. And to write the secret empress, secret empress, excuse me, debut novel, he drew on his 30 years of experience working in and traveling to China in the import business. Oh, there you are. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. That was quite an intro. Well, you deserve it, Frank. You deserve it. You wrote a novel, you crazy man. What What possessed I you? I did. You had a full life. You were doing just fine. And then... I'm a glutton for punishment. You must be. Well, let's, all right, let's back up. Let's back up. Before we get to The Secret Empress, which was published in okay. March, so it's been out a little while, but before we get to her... Um, so you 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 were you had a business you worked in in imports and you spent some time in China itself yeah I mean obviously this as I said this was based on your experiences but um you did you have a business that you were that, that was taking you to China regularly yes I was in manufacturing builders and cabinet hardware uh, in mainland China and as a result we were in at least once a year. Um, wow. Every year, the, the How far Chinese back? produce. Oh, like what was the years. first year you were there? My first year in in China was in the Navy in 1964. Oh, oh, okay. Which right, was so you, yeah, yeah. That was enormously eye opening. Then I was 17 what? years old, and the 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 poverty and the immense wealth was stark, and an eye opener for a young kid. Wait, so but do you mean? Um, do you, hold on a sec. Do you mean that the that China's wealth, enormous wealth and it, the contrast between their stark poverty and the wealth in China? Or are you thinking about America's wealth compared to China's poverty? No, Hong Kong. Hong Kong. In Just, Hong okay. Kong in 1964, there were 750,000 people living in shanties on the hillsides in the New Territories in 1964. Wow. wow. And these were, these were mostly refugees from Southeast Asia and yeah. some escapees from communist China. Right. So right. It, it was it was unbelievable to see the way in which they lived. They built right. shanties out of whatever scraps they could find in a in a garbage heap. Wow. And you're 17 years old. But, you're, you're fresh out of high. Yeah, school. You're barely right. out of high school. Yeah, I graduated in in the winter of '63. Enlisted in March of '63, and by '64 I was overseas. Holy crap. Wow. Wow. Okay. So, and you're over there. And so, and where did you come from? Did you, where, where, did, where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles, but I was born in okay. Bucharest. You were born in Bucharest. My, okay. So your parents were a little international. My mother was in hiding in Budapest during the war. What? And she and she and my father managed to escape on one side when the Russians invaded to fight the Nazis on the other side. Was your and, mom Jewish? Uh, she yes. hiding because she was. She, so she was. Wow. Wow. She was hiding. She had no papers, and that was the the only way that she survived, ironically. But wow. um, she got as far as Budapest. She was pregnant with me. The right. war ended in May, and I was born in June. Jeez, she was living a suspense novel. You wrote one, but she was living it. Yeah, she was. That's that's a whole series of stories there. Yeah, but, um, but we we. Moved to Los Angeles when I was three, so okay. I've grown so up you, here. All right, so you you really grew up a Los Angelino, 
But okay, so you go out there and you know, I can imagine you're 17, you're seeing the world in that way. Like you can't, if the, you're never going to be the same. You can't have the same sort of uh, provincial worldview at that point. No, no, especially growing up in West Los Angeles, going to um, middle class, upper middle class schools, you have a certain view of the world, and that changes sure. remarkably with wow, those experiences. Yeah. Well, especially 64, America itself was still sort of innocent in a sort of, you know, maybe a little less so than now for sure. So, so you really, so, okay. So you woke up, you went through Viet, you were, you, you did your time in Vietnam and then you go into business. Uh, while you were living this first part of your life, uh, were you doing any kind of writing just on your own? I've always been doing a little bit of writing. Um, okay. You have to remember, I'm on my fifth incarnation. Oh, when I oh, was in the yeah. art business, I was, I was doing monographs on artist biographies and exhibition catalogs. Um, I, I've done probably a hundred of those, um, oh. six of which are in the Smithsonian. Right, so right. My right. This is my first venture into fiction. Right, okay. But the so, Secret so, Empress... Go ahead. Wait, wait. So this is a fifth. Uh, this this is always interesting. I love people who reincarnate themselves professionally in any way, but interestingly professionally. So, all right. So, list me the five incarnations. Writing is the fifth. What came before then? I started out out of the navy. Um, my intent was to go to medical school. Oh, okay. My all mother right. got sick, and that didn't work out. I wound up in the art business. We had an art in the, gallery in Beverly Hills. You interesting. So you go from medicine yeah. to the art to an art gallery, okay? All right. And you to and how long did you do that for? How long were you in, had, did you have an uh, art gallery? Up until closed the gallery in '74. Okay. All right. So you did that for a little and, while, and and after that, um, I was involved in in fine art publishing of um, of lithographs and and mezzotints, aquatints, things of that sort. Okay, that interesting. That lasted for a very short time. Okay. Um, and my father-in-law asked me to give him a hand in his business, which was the import and manufacturer of builders and cabinet hardware. Okay. I was supposed to help him out for a week, and <laughs> that lasted about 40 years. Did you take over the business? Did you become like the business? Did you take it over completely at some point? Well, my wife and I. Right. Okay. I, so I eventually it was passed along. I was, work, I was working for my wife. <laughs> okay. All right. And you can work with your wife. You don't want to kill each other? Well, you haven't. Absolutely. Apparently. Okay. Well, then, no, you know, it's we tough. Used to spend, well, we would spend 20 hours a day together. So, Jesus and God. we've been together for 37 years. All right. Well, that's a good marriage there, Frank. So I can't, com can't complain about that. No, that's a good one. Okay, so this was that was really the big chunk of your adult life was running this business. You must have liked doing it. You did it for forty years. I hope you liked it. It was a lot of fun. It was a yeah. lot of fun. And you're going over to China um, every year. But part part of that was attending the uh, Chinese International Import Export Fair, which is okay. held every year in Canton. Okay. Um, and they they exhibit everything that is grown, mined manufactured, assembled, or thought of in China in every must, province in the country. What? 
is exhibited be, at the fair. It must be huge. It would have to be huge. When I first started going, it was seven small buildings in the center of the oldest part of the city of Canton. Okay. And you would go from one building to the next and floor to floor. And right. it's like any other convention. You have these small little booths. Sure. And the provinces are showing off their wares. Right. Today, it's it's a huge, huge complex, over a million square feet under roof, outside wow. the city. Wow. Wow. And it's, and, it's broken wow. down into segments of three to seven day exhibits so that they, they can show off everything that they do. Jesus. Now, this is fascinating because – so when did you start the import business? What year? Like, what, no, I went to work for. I mean, when did you go to? Where did you start in the import? When did you start in the import business? How? Oh, old, what year was that when you started working for your father-in-law? Probably seventy-nine, eighty. All right. So you have really, and you were going there every year for forty for forty years. So you were really watching China at least once a year. Yeah. So, so you you got a, a relatively Wait, first-hand no, try, view. Try of, this one. Try this one on for size. We're manufacturing cabinet hinges in a factory in China outside of Canton. Okay. They call up and they say, Frank, I'm sorry, we can't ship on time. Why? We ran out of our allotment of electricity. <laughs> what year was that? Oh, that was early on. Um, so they were like they were like North Korea. They were having to raise electricity. Wow. Everything, I didn't realize it. everything was rationed. Uh, once it. in a while, wow. we would get a call. Our telephone lines and our power lines are down because somebody tore down the lines to steal the copper and sell it on the black market. Wow. Whoa. So, so for those, so, Today, the, so in the early '80s, it was really just like kind of like kind of like a, a post-apocalyptic a little bit. It was so they were really rough because I know how. I mean, I know things were that that the communist regime was not good to its people a lot and there was just a lot of poverty and violence and you know corruption and the the usual stuff that um, that was more way before i got involved right right i know early on it was just way really before. bad in the 50s and 60s okay so, so you get to watch it today and just because this, this is kind of important for people to understand the difference between running out of electricity then and what happens today is the factory calls up and says we can't ship I can't keep my workers. Oh, they leave really? the factories. They go to the big cities to get high-tech, higher-paying jobs. Oh, oh. So even so, now China's having trouble keeping their. Uh, oh, that's so. Oh, that's interesting because the price of education, I guess, is is starting to uh, get its toll. No, that's the, interesting. The, the price of successful industrialization. Right, and so now that yeah, I'd, I'd heard an interview with somebody. Actually, it was Gary Locke, who was, used to be the governor of Washington, and he was a was I forget who he was in the Obama administration, but he was somehow involved with trade. Um, he said, you know, what happens with with manufacturing is the cheap labor just keeps moving. So it moved to China, and it's going to eventually move off of China to somewhere else, into some because things get so successful that you can't pay the workers as little as you could afford to pay them. So it keeps moving and moving and moving. Well, but there are other factors in China as well. China did something very, very smart. They created the free economic zone along their eastern seaboard, which allowed people to own private property, to amass oh. their own wealth, and right. to keep it. Yeah. They created oh. capitalism right. on they, the eastern they said seaboard of their country. Just the eastern seaboard. So, 
Well, it's it's a pretty wide swath of these right, seaboard, right. but yes. Is that so they could ship to and the so West? They created, exactly. They, they created right. millionaires and billionaires. Right. And they created massive industry that went far beyond just manufacturing. Right. So what's happening now is they're losing those manufacturing jobs. Interesting. But um, China is, is fascinating because, you know, American companies, they plan – six months, a year, two years, three years, maybe five years down the road. Right. China plans 25, 50, 100 years down the road. Wow. That's Wow. Huge difference. I did not know that. All right. Well, I could talk about China all day, but we're here to talk about writing. So eventually you – so, okay, so you, you, your, your fifth incarnation is you want to write a novel. Now, how did that begin? What got into your head? So you said you've been writing all along. Had you been writing – but had you been writing fiction before? Like, were you dabbling in short stories or anything? Was any of that going on? I've been, I, no, I've been doing film treatments. Ah, so okay. Here's, yeah, you're here's down the there story in the about the Secret Empress. Okay, lay the it on. The Secret Empress was originally a five-page treatment for a film. Okay. I sold it to a film company. All right. They promptly did absolutely nothing with it. Yeah. Well, welcome to Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, so I got friends right, who make a living. Came back to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You can make a very good living that way. Oh, sure. Yeah. Never name, getting anything. You can made. make money. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the rights came back to me, and that was 18 years ago. Wow. Whoa. Okay. So, uh, okay. So when did the rights come back to you? Uh, two years after they bought it. Okay, so they, they had hung two, on two years, years to begin principal photography. They right, didn't do they it. Did nothing. Okay, so now it's yours again. So, so you're like, uh, four what are you years do? ago, I pull out the five pages, and I turn the five pages into a sixty-five page short story. Okay. I gave it to an agent in town by the name of Mike Hamelberg, who uh-huh. read the sixty-five pages, and he said, "Fantastic, turn it into a novel." Yeah, you can't sell 65 pages to anybody. So, all right, so now you're back to the novel, okay? Now, Bill, I don't know if you have grandkids. No, sir, not yet. I have four beautiful granddaughters. Okay. But you're a writer. You can imagine every time you sit down to your computer to get some work done, if some small person climbs up on your lap and says, Poppy, can we look at pictures on the computer? Your writing process is going to be very, very long. Yeah, it's that's oh, that's a that's a good excuse, Frank. But you gotta you gotta you gotta <laughs> find a time when those little tykes can't crawl up on your lap. All right, so they can't, so you had life got it in the way, but you kept, it took you five. Right, well, you know what? Had you ever written a novel before? No. Well, four no. years is pretty this, good. This was that that was my first attempt at doing a novel. Yeah. It's, well, okay. And, so let's talk uh, about that first attempt because uh, sure. that's a one thing to write a five page treatment, 65 page short. That really, not really a short story. That's more like a uh, novella almost, but, but, Oh, Placido Domingo died. It looks like, Oh, well, um, uh, or maybe he didn't. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, some news flash went across my screen. Um, okay, so you're writing a novel. That's a whole thing. There's a lot to learn. So, what was what were the biggest lessons you had to learn in you had to learn in uh, in writing that book? Pairing the history of China with the elements of the story uh, to make sure they meshed. Yeah, and I should tell our listeners it's a, whole, it's a suspense. It's a suspense story, and, and 
quite a compelling one, uh, but it involves it's a China's mystery history. Who's yeah. done it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But part, so of, you had, part that, of the impetus for the story um, uh-huh. was on my many, many trips to China. At at one point, we took a little side trip, went to Beijing, went to the Forbidden City, and I'm standing in the Hall of Harmony, looking at the Imperial Dragon Throne of China. Uh-huh. Wow. The seat of power in China for 650 years. Right. And, you know, most people remember the movie, The Last Emperor. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I remember and it. In the movie, the emperor's wife, the empress, gives yeah. birth to a child and the child dies. Uh-huh. Well, what if that didn't happen? Right. What if? Right. What if? What if? The whole concept of asking what if yeah. was what led me into the story. That's it. That's what if it. turn left instead of right? That's right. That's where writing starts. Writing, so here you go, listeners. Writing is about the writer asking himself or herself compelling questions. You're always driven by a compelling question of some kind. You ask the question, what if? And isn't it interesting, Frank, uh, as a creative person, you ask a question and answers come, don't they? You, if you ask a question that is really interesting to you, some sort of answer comes, yeah? Absolutely. Yeah, that's the way it works. That's the you way it works. You just have to be you, open to the thought. That's right. You got to be open to it. You got to be open and allow whatever the answer to be to be, yeah? Yeah. And so, I, I found that as I was doing my research – I learned uh-huh. an awful lot about Chinese history yeah. and an awful lot about what, what really constituted the interaction between the West and China and how we came to be where we are today, Yeah, which was fascinating. So you, did, so you got to learn a lot of history, but you got to tell a story. Got to tell a story because yes. you didn't write a history book. You wrote a suspense novel. And um, – what did you have to what what you know uh one of my favorite quotes about this by the southern gothic short story writer flannery o'connor who said everyone knows what a story is until they try to tell one and it is true about stories <laughs> that you, you you get sit down and say well I'll just tell this story uh and even if you're a storyteller just verbally, like maybe a raconteur, or you've read a lot of books, but it's a whole other thing when you try to structure your own story. So how did that go? Did you run into snags? Uh, did you outline into the outline work? Did you not outline? How did the actual story structuring go? For me, the easiest part was to do the five-page treatment, because uh-huh. in, in writing, what I'm doing is I'm visualizing what this story would look like on a movie screen. Right. Good, so I can, I can visualize my characters. I can visualize the scenes that they're walking through, the, right. um, the territories in China, the Great Wall, the Forbidden City. And I can look at my character and imagine how he is going to react to a particular situation. Right. And so did the, sto- so and, the story that was outlined in the five-page treatment, did that remain your story or did it change dramatically once it became a novel? It changed only to the extent that it became more fleshed out. There was right, more this, detail, and right. there was more excitement, hopefully more excitement. But the same beginning, middle, and end. Yes. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So Just that with a 18, lot more detail. 
Right. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Unless you just use a huge font. I don't know how you're going to turn five pages into it. No. So, um, uh, so you, um, so that's interesting. The, the story idea you had 20 years ago, or whatever, 18 years ago, remained intact, even because that doesn't always happen. You know, things, sometimes people get in there and things change dramatically, you know, whole thing, but it stayed the same for you. you apparently your vision was your vision from the get go. That fair to say? Yeah, one of one of the interesting things that came about is that I got two thirds of the way into it, and I and my my central character is named Joe Wilder, mm-hmm. and he gets enmeshed into a problem with the deputy minister of trade that he is dealing with in his company, right. and she asks him to do a favor for her, which is to help her her son come to the United States. Right. And and I'm sitting there thinking this guy puts himself in the middle of tremendous danger. Right. Why is he going to do this? Right. Good question. Why is a businessman going to put himself in the middle of being hunted by the biggest crime organization in Chinese history with tentacles that go back to the first and second opium wars in China? Right. Why is he going to do that? Yeah. So aside from the fact that you character. need him to. Right. Yeah, aside from that. Right. Otherwise the whole story <laughs> falls apart. Right. Right. So in doing that, I had to add to the uh, to the backstory on the character. Yeah. And his character is that he was a, a world champion bodybuilder, a Mr. Right. Olympia, Mr. Universe. And secretly he was an undercover operative for the CIA, a field agent. Right. 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 And in his history, he's in Paris. He goes into a department store to do some shopping, and he walks into the middle of a terrorist attack where five terrorists have taken 12 children hostage. Right. And since he's there, he goes on the offensive. He eliminates four of the five terrorists, frees the children, all except one, and that one child he couldn't save. And he walks out of the building carrying the dead body of a 12-year-old boy. Right. That just haunts That child that he could not save. Yeah. Yeah, And that haunts him for the rest of his life. See, isn't it interesting? And now he's asked to save a 12-year-old child. Right. Perfect. And you see, you know what's interesting about that, Frank, is that's a great detail. It's a great tie-in motivation is that what we have is, as, as writers, we create these little problems for ourselves that we have to solve. You know, you've got to give him motivation. And in having to solve that problem, you come up with something quite, you come up with some of your best stuff solving the little problems that you've handed yourself, right? You created that little problem. Exactly. And you had to, so did you enjoy writing it? Was it fun? I loved it. Yeah? I absolutely loved it. Yeah? What'd you love about uh, it? The sequel. The sequel, oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, everybody loves different things. What'd you love about it? Giving the first draft of the novel to my ten-year-old granddaughter. Uh, that who was is you like a that. Voracious reader. Yeah. And she is she's absolutely incredible. I would never have finished the manuscript had it not been for my granddaughter Gemma. Wow. Because wow. she she read the sixty-five pages, and every time I would pick her up at school, which I do twice a week. She would say, Poppy, how's the Empress coming? Did you finish it yet? Wow. Jeez. 
Now, as That's a like, grandfather, how are you, how you going go? to say to your oldest hey. granddaughter, nah, I got lazy, uh, I didn't do it. Right. Now you got to do it. Wow, that's a hell of a granddaughter you got there. That, that most I'll, I'll, kids I'll you, don't want to read. Story. Go ahead. Did you did you see the cover of the book? Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Okay, you see that there's a dragon there. Oh yeah. Which is the imperial dragon of China. Right. My original thought was, since we're talking about the empress, was to put an image of the imperial throne on the cover of the book. Uh, right, and my right. granddaughter, my granddaughter Gemma says, after reading it, she says, the dragon's claw is the imperial guard. It's the symbol. Mm-hmm. The dragon is the symbol of the imperial guard and the symbol of the emperor. Why do you want to put an old chair on the cover of your book? Put a dragon on the cover of your book. I think she was right. Now, now you she see was the right. cover of the book. That Absolutely. is awesome. Well, Frank, you're an interesting guy. I'm sorry our time is almost already up, but uh, I, before I let you go, I have to ask you two two things. First of all, if people want to buy your book, learn about you, where's the best place for them to go? Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, Better World Books, Goodreads. Goodreads gave me five stars. Bookshout, oh, and it's on eBay. Is it? Are you? Do you have a website just your own where they can go and learn about you and so on? Yes, uh, it is thesecretempress.com. Okay, excellent. All right, my other question for you, Frank, is I want you to finish the sentence. If writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? Never give up. Ah, that's a good thing to learn. It's a good thing to learn. Well, Frank, thank you so much for coming on the show. Good luck with The Secret Empress. I hope you get to reach lots of people, and good luck with the, uh, with the sequel. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you for the time, and I look forward to seeing you in October. Okay. I hope we get to meet up. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Never give up, people. It's true. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. There's no point. You give up, and then you have to keep doing something anyway, and then you haven't given up. You see how it works? That's how it works. It's true. All right. I will be back next week with somebody who, oh, yes, somebody from Britain. Holly Watt. That'll be interesting. Until then, I want to thank my producer, RJ Jeffries. Thank you, RJ. You're awesome. And to all you listeners, go find something you love and do it. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.